You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 8. If you're a guest with us, We're in the midst of this series, this Jesus Encounter series, where we're going through the book of Luke, and we're trying to discover what we can about Jesus by way of the encounters that he has with various individuals throughout throughout the gospel. And one of the motivations for us doing this is because not only do we want to gain a clear picture of who Jesus is, what he's about, what he's like, but in that, by discovering what we can about Jesus, we get a clear picture of who God is. And the reason why I say that is not only because Jesus is God, but he came with a purpose that in himself he would make God known. Uh, If you've studied, read the Gospel of John in what is called the prologue of John, John 1, verses 1 to 18, John speaks of Jesus metaphorically, and he says that Jesus is the eternal word that was with God and was God, and that he came. Uh, He fleshed himself up. He came. And one of the purposes for his coming was to make God known, that no one had ever seen God, and, and Jesus, the one at the Father's side, has come to make him known. In other words, he didn't merely come, the eternal word didn't merely come as a spokesman for God. You and I can do that. But came as God. This is referred to as the incarnation, God concarni, God with meat, God in a bod. That's Jesus. He came to make him known. And that's why we're going through this series because Jesus reveals countless characteristics and attributes and and sweet pictures of what God is is like. And and one of the things that he reveals, one of those many characteristics seen in Jesus is the tenderness of God, which takes us to our text. Luke chapter 8, we're reading verses 40 to 56. I, I only think I teared up about three or four times in the first gathering. We'll see how it goes in this guy. It's really important. I tear up a lot when I, when I teach and read through various texts, but I could still take all of you. Okay, just so you understand this. So. <laughs> Let's read verses 40 to 56. You probably never heard a pastor say anything like that. When Jesus returned, uh, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Just then, a man named Jairus came. He was a leader of the synagogue. He fell down at Jesus' feet, and he pleaded with him to come to his house because he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. While he was going, the crowds were nearly crushing him. A woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years who had spent all she had on doctors and yet could not be healed by any approached from behind and touched the end of his robe instantly, Her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are hemming you in and pressing against you. Someone did touch me, said Jesus. I know that the power has gone out from me. When the woman saw that she was discovered, she came trembling and fell down before him. In the presence of all the people, she declared the reason she had touched him and how she was instantly healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
While he was still speaking, someone from the synagogue leader's house uh, came, excuse me, from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. When Jesus heard it, he answered him, don't be afraid, only believe, and she will be saved. After he came to the house, he let no one enter with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Everyone was crying and mourning for her, but he said, stop crying because she is not dead but asleep. They laughed at him because they knew she was dead. So he took her by the hand and called out, child, get up. Her spirit returned, and she got up at once. Then he gave orders that she be given something to eat. Her parents were astounded, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Good luck with that, by the way. Good luck with that. Yeah, just keep this between us. Uh, let me pray before we go any further. Father, um, uh, take, take the little, I pray, take the little that I bring and multiply it so that we could be fed today uh, with overflowing. Uh, take, take the s- sticks that are this sermon and light it on fire, I pray, for the glory of your name and so that we would be furthered along in our walk and journey of faith with you. And I pray for these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. If you were here a couple weeks ago, um, we dropped in in one of our encounters on a, encounters on a dinner, a dinner hosted by a Pharisee, a man named Simon. And it was a meal, if you remember, that was interrupted by, by a woman who poured a, a year's wages worth of perfume out on Jesus' feet. I, I bring up that encounter because this encounter has many similarities to it. For one, Like Simon the Pharisee, we have a man here named Jairus, a a person who is described as a leader of the synagogue. That's a big deal. It's not a throwaway comment. He has position, he has power, he has status. He also has a wife. We read about a, a wife and he also has a daughter, an only daughter who's 12 years old, but she is sick and she is dying. We'll come back to that in a bit. But second, we have an unnamed woman. This should also remind us of a couple of weeks ago. This woman, however, had been bleeding for 12 years. It's interesting. Jairus has a 12-year-old daughter who is sick and dying, and this woman had been bleeding for 12 years. Quite the coincidence. This description of her bleeding is a nice way of saying that she had an uncontrollable menstrual flow which means that not only would she have been weak and sick and in pain, she wouldn't have been able to have children, meaning, making things worse, excuse me, she was ceremonially unclean, which means that she wasn't allowed to touch or be touched for 12 years. Let me read the following for you. It's on the screen behind me. It's a a text that you probably wouldn't think you would ever have to read on a Sunday morning, but I'm going to give it to you anyways. When When a woman has a discharge and it consists of blood from her body, she will be unclean because of her menstruation for seven days. Everyone who touches her will be unclean until evening. Anything she lies on during her menstruation will be un become unclean, and anything she sits on will become unclean. But in her case, not considered unclean for seven days. 
but going on 12 years. But not only that, she's broke. She has spent all that she had on doctors to help find a cure, but no cure came. So put it all together. Who is this woman? Well, she has no name. She has no money. She has no family. She, she has no touch. She has no cure. She has no hope and unclean for over a decade. She, she could not be more opposite from Jairus. And that's the point. That's why this is here. We have a, a religious aristocrat and we have a social outcast, both needing Jesus, both seeking Jesus. Why? Because they have a problem. Problems that represent problems we all share. They have nothing in common except for one thing. They have a 12-year-old problem, and they both need Jesus. If you get just one thing out of this encounter, please get that. This again reminds us again of two weeks ago that no one is too good to not need the grace of God, and no one is too bad, quote-unquote, to not receive it. Both of these individuals, they see their problem, they're living with their problem, and both, they throw all social decorum and protocol aside and they literally grab onto Jesus. Go back to Jairus, look at verse 41. One more time. His only daughter is sick. Only daughter is sick. And so, what does this leader of the synagogue do? Well, he seeks Jesus out and he falls at his feet and he pleads with him to heal his daughter. By the way, I don't know if you've picked it up, but feet, Jesus' feet are a big, big deal in the Gospel of Luke. Right? Two weeks ago, perfume all over Jesus' feet. Last week, Mary at Jesus' feet. Here, Jairus at Jesus' feet. We should have called this series Encounters at Jesus' Feet. I mean, it's all over the place. Beautiful things happen at Jesus' feet. And that's where Jairus is. But quick question. In general, just think about it. In general... How is the response during the earthly ministry of Jesus by those in religious authority? How is their response towards him? Synagogue leaders, for example. Well, in general, it's not good. There are exceptions, but in general, the religious leadership of the day disdained Jesus. They, they plotted to kill Jesus. In Luke's gospel, he emphasizes that it's the tax collectors and it's the centurions, it's the prostitutes, it's the outcasts, it's the fishermen who follow Jesus, not the religious upper crust. They were proud. They were self-righteous. They loved the accolades that came with their positions, and most were jealous at the popularity that Jesus had. But now here, Jairus in front of everyone, and I would argue risking expulsion from the synagogue itself, throws himself at Jesus' feet and begs him to heal his daughter. Death will do that, won't it? The threat of death 
will do that. That's what it does. The, the threat of death reminds us that our titles don't matter. That our bank accounts and degrees and our accolades and our status and our good works and our philanthropy don't matter either. None of it matters when face to face with death. Death, the threat of death and death itself also reminds us of how proud we can be, how we've excused certain practices for decades, living life like we're going to live forever until we realize that we're not, or someone close to us isn't either, like an only daughter. Death has a way of stripping away all pride and putting us all on equal ground, regardless of your background, regardless of you're a woman bleeding for 12 years or a leader of a synagogue. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, this is why he wrote that funerals are better than birthdays. It's also the reason why most people hate funerals, because they remind us of our eternality. They force us to consider that this life is but a mist, but what we do in the mist matters forever. That's what funerals do. And that it profits us nothing if in the mist we gain the whole world, but we lose our soul. And that even though we may think we have it all in control in the mist, there is one enemy, the final enemy, death itself, that we stand, all of us stand no chance against unless one thing happens. That before death comes, we fall at the feet of Jesus. It's our only hope, which is where we find Jairus and where we get the first hint of Jesus' tenderness. What does Jesus do? He goes with him. It's not a little thing. Crowds pressing in all around Jesus, needs everywhere. but he goes with him. And no recorded interaction. You don't even get a hint of shaming on Jesus' part. Like, oh, now you come to me, Jairus. When things get tough. He just goes with him. Take a look at verse 42. Halfway through, Luke writes there, and we'll pick it up and read from there. While he was going, the crowds were nearly crushing him. A woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years who had spent all she had on, the, on doctors and yet could not be healed by any approach from behind and touched the end of his robe. Instantly, her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are hemming you in and pressing against you. Someone did touch me, Jesus said. I, I know that power has gone out of me. I've shared over the years that in the ministry life of Jesus, in his teaching ministry life, he asks a lot of questions. 307, to be exact, are recorded in the Gospels. We get one here. Who touched me? Peter responds essentially by saying, what are you talking about, Jesus? Everybody's touching you, Jesus. The crowds are pressing in on you, Jesus. Peter has this great ability of filling silence with stupidity. That's Peter. I know that sounds harsh, but he always says something awkwardly at times. Why did Jesus ask the question? Do, do we really think that someone who had the power to heal with the touch of his robe didn't know who touched him? 
I've shared that in my university years, I, I sat under some very liberal, theologically liberal teachers. And one of the things that I, I heard from one of them is that God asking questions in the Bible, like when God in the Garden of Eden calls out to the hiding Adam and Eve, where are you? It's a demonstration that God needs to learn like we do, that he has to learn along the way. Hmm. When my boys were little, if I walked into the kitchen and there was an empty cookie jar there, crumbs all over their shirt, chocolate chip smudges all over their face, and I asked them, did you guys eat all the cookies? Am I asking it for my sake or theirs? I'm asking it for their sake. Why? Because I want them to come clean. I want them to be clean. When God calls Adam and Eve in the garden who are hiding in the trees, where are you? That's his motive too. And that's Jesus' motive here. That's most often why he asks questions for our sake, not his. For us to stop hiding. Hiding in the trees or hiding in the crowd. Come out and be clean. Before looking at the woman's response, I want us to notice the depiction of faith that she shows here. We've seen countless examples of faith throughout this series, but this woman, like Jairus, had to break through the crowd and, and risk possible outcry. But she did. And Peter says, when Jesus asks, who touched me? Peter's response is, Master, the crowds are hemming you in and pressing all over the place, but hers, so great, was a touch of a different kind. A, a touch that distinguished it from the rest. A, a touch of faith that brought forth the power of Jesus. To be specific, he says, the power has gone out of me. Remember that statement when we go to the end. It was also a touch that made Jesus stop. He, he goes with Jairus, but he stops here and he asks, who touched me? Why? The answer why is because even though this woman had been healed of her bleeding, there was a healing that still needed to take place. And so in verse 47, when the woman saw that she was discovered, she came trembling and fell down before him. In the presence of all the people, let me read that again. In the presence of all the people, she declared the reason she had touched him and how she was instantly healed. I've, I've read some this week who point to verse 47 and they say it's like a baptism, that it's, you know, baptism is a visible expression of our, our faith in Jesus and that's what this is for this woman. I, I agree to a point, but not fully because I think this is so much more. This is a restoration in the presence of all the people. This is her chance to not only reveal her faith but share her story. This unnamed, destitute, ostracized, impoverished, hopeless woman 
is given a chance to have an audience and tell her story and be welcomed back into the community, no longer ceremonially unclean, now healed by Jesus, he doing for her what no one else could. That's why Jesus stops and asks, who touched me? He's not testing her. He's tenderly restoring her. You see, in verse 44, she is healed physically. Yes, instantly, just like that. But in verse 47, she's healed relationally. She's healed emotionally. And in verse 48, she's healed spiritually when Jesus says, their daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Some of your translations will say, Jesus saying, your faith has made you well, go in peace. That word well, special word in the New Testament, the word sozo in the Greek, comes up a hundred times in, in the New Testament itself. There are other words for well that could be used, but this one is, is very important. It's a word, yes, that speaks of healing, but it speaks also of freedom. It speaks of, of salvation. One, one New Testament Greek scholar writes that it's a word that, that in it packages the complete package of salvation. In other words, when you read that word, whether it's translated well or saved, it's totality in its scope. That she wasn't just healed physically. Emotionally and spiritually. The ultimate disease was taken from her. It's a great verse. It's a verse as well that I would argue is one of the most tender displays of Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus calls her daughter. This is the only place in the Gospels, where Jesus calls anyone this. Do you see what's going on? Do you see what's going on? What was Jairus' dilemma? He has a 12-year-old daughter who is dying, and so he pleaded with Jesus to come and heal her, and Jesus goes with him, and what happens? Jesus heals another daughter along the way who had been bleeding for 12 years, alone, outcast, no family. And when he heals her of all the things he could have called her, he calls her daughter. And I would argue that's what she needed to hear most. What tenderness. Philip, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is what God is like. This is who Jesus came to make known. You know, this week I spent some time just thinking about this woman and her 12 years, and I wondered how hard must her 12 years have been? I wonder about her cries to God, her anger, her sorrow, her loneliness, her desperation. In, in Mark's account of this event, he sheds some additional light. One of the things that he says is that when she's approaching Jesus, she thinks to herself, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. 
Why just his clothes? I read some this week who said, well, actually, she was trying to grab onto a tassel. Jesus, a rabbi, would have worn the the proper uniform of a rabbi. He had tassels. You can read about this in Numbers 15 that represented different healing uh, ideas of God. That's what she's doing. She's grabbing onto the tassel. I don't think that's the reason, with all due respect. I think the answer is because she understood her uncleanness and didn't want to make Jesus unclean. You you remember the Leviticus Leviticus text? I think she knew the law and knew that those who she touched would be considered unclean, and so she only touches his clothes. But Jesus still felt the power go out of him. The power went out of Jesus, and she was made clean. Are you beginning to hear the gospel? She wanted to come in secret and go in secret, but Jesus had something else in mind. Again, are you beginning to see the gospel? In verse 48, Jesus says to her what he said to the woman who poured perfume all over his feet. Your faith is saved. You go in peace. Peace with God and peace with all the people for the first time in 12 years. And by calling her daughter, he says to her, you may have no family here, but you're now part of mine. (laughs) That's our Jesus, man. Verse 49. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead, don't bother the teacher anymore. (laughs) Love this guy. Like, great bedside manner, hey? I mean, who, who does that? Hard to like him. But don't miss what he says. Jesus, when she was sick, if you came, perhaps you could have helped. But now that she's dead, you no longer can. So good. I don't I I hope I, I hope Jesus had a little bit of a smirk. Like try me. Try me. But instead, look at what he says in verse in verse 50. When Jesus heard it, he answered him, That's Jairus, don't be afraid, only believe, and she will be saved. Let me ask you a question. You're just, just put yourself in the midst of this throng of people. How strengthening to Jairus do you think the woman's testimony would have been when Jesus said, don't be afraid, just believe, and she'll be saved? It, it must have been so utterly helpful to him. Jairus, I just saved one daughter. I can save yours too. You just heard her story. Which is another reason why Jesus stopped to hear her story as much for Jairus' sake as for hers. Sharing her story not only brought her healing and strength, but it strengthened Jairus along the way too. That's what our stories are meant to do. 
That's what our testimonies are meant to do. There's a chapter in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 11, it's called the Hall of Faith. The whole chapter is just sharing story after story, faith story after faith story of countless men and women. Their stories are awe-inspiring. But the application of, of Hebrews chapter 11 is found in the next chapter, the first couple of verses. You can read it behind me where the author of Hebrews writes, therefore, going back to chapter 11, therefore, based on their stories of faith, since we also have such a large crowd of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus. Can you hear that? That's what's going on here in our text. Jairus, believe in me. Keep your eyes on me, but use this woman's story to strengthen you in your journey. Keep running this race. She is serving as a witness for Jairus. But this is also where this encounter is different than the centurion's. Remember what the centurion said to Jesus by way of some spokesman? Jesus, you don't have to come. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus is amazed at that, if you remember. And he says, even in Israel, I have not seen such faith. Jairus doesn't have such faith. But Jesus doesn't chide him for it. Instead, he says, keep believing Jairus keep believing and strengthens him, strengthens him with the testimony of another healed daughter. Again, I'll say it, it's tender. Let's pick things up in verse 51 and we'll read to the end. After he came to the house, he let no one enter with him except Peter, John, and James and the child's father and mother. Everyone was crying and mourning for her, but he said, stop crying because she is not dead but asleep. They laughed at him because they, they knew she was dead. So he took her by the hand and called out, Child, get up. Her spirit returned, and she got up at once. Then he gave orders that she be given something to eat. Her parents were astounded, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. As, as we make a turn for home in, in this, let, let me take a quick poll, raising of hands. How many here believe that Jesus ever told a lie? Heresy, right? Even if you believed it, you wouldn't, because you would get beat up by the people next to you. <laughs> Heresy. But doesn't he tell a lie in verse 52? When he says, she is not dead, but asleep. She was dead. Luke writes that the mourners in verse 53 know that she was dead, and they laughed at him. So how do we reconcile this? Well, some may say, well, he says that she's asleep because he's about to bring her back. Sure, but it's still a lie even in that sense. So what then? Well, we know he's not lying because he is God in flesh. And so he must be saying something else. Something so important, and please, every detail in this is vital. 
says something so important that in Mark's account of this event, it tells us that Jesus emptied the room at those who laughed at him. That word laughter, as you read it there, means mockery. It's scornful. But you don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. He enters, excuse me, empties the room of all those who mocked him, and then he takes Peter, James, and John, of all people. That's important. With him, along with mom and dad. Why? Well, because Jesus wants us to learn something about death and his power over it. Jesus has something significant to reveal for those who had eyes to see. Not for the mockers. Not for the ones who ridiculed. Not for the ones who laughed. But pillars of the early church, Peter, James, and John, and a synagogue leader and his wife. Again, every single detail, every single word is vital here. What does Jesus want us to see? What does he want to reveal? Well, take a look at verse 54 one more time. Let me read it. I know I've read it before. It's a short one. So he took her by the hand. So we've got Jesus, Peter, James, John, mom and dad, and the little child in the room. It's just this. And he says to the child, after taking her by the hand, child, get up. That's an Aramaic expression. Teleta kum is what Jesus says. Kum means get up. Teleta, translated here as child, is a very, very, very tender term. Experts in Greek say that you could translate it with the word honey. So Jesus takes her hand and he says to her, honey, get up. He doesn't stand with his arms raised, crying out, looking to the heavens, be resurrected. He just says, honey, it's time to get up. Do you see again what he's revealing here? In the presence of death, the great enemy of death. Jesus takes a little girl's hand and says sweetly to her, honey, get up. And when this little girl opens her eyes, she's staring in the eyes of Jesus, standing next to her, holding her hand and instructing people to get her something to eat. Do you remember verse 47? She's dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Don't bother the teacher anymore. When death is present, don't bother this teacher anymore. This is what this teacher came to destroy. This is why he came This is why Paul cries out, you can read this behind me, in 1 Corinthians 15, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world. 
that he gave us his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So back to the question, how can Jesus say she's only asleep? What is he revealing to us? Well, he says this because in the presence of Jesus, for those who are in Jesus, <clears throat> that's what death is. It's like going to sleep and in the twinkling of an eye having Jesus say, honey, it's time to get up and enter the joy of your father where death will be no more. You see, this encounter and others like it, like the raising of Lazarus, are foretastes. They're shadows. They hint at something that, that is coming, that find their culmination at the resurrection of Jesus and our resurrection thereafter. That, in part, is why Jesus instructs them, don't tell anyone what has happened. Why? Well, for one, it won't make any sense apart from the resurrection of Jesus. But for two, I don't want people following me because I'm doing this. I want them following me because I do that. So don't tell anybody. But remember who was there along with mom and dad, the pillars of the early church. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John on some really, really important events, just exclusively, and it's for a reason. For when the church is launched, they bear testimony. And when we get to the early New Testament church, when we start reading the letters of the early New Testament church, how the church viewed death has, had entirely changed. Remember the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr of the early church? Luke, the same Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke, of course, he writes that he knelt down, Stephen did, and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. In what is known as the resurrection chapter, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. A few verses later, he writes, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And later, and I'll put this on the screen behind me, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he writes, Paul writes, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and do you? Do you? This is, this is throwing ourselves at the feet of Jesus' moments for us. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So that's why Jesus can say, he's just, she's just asleep. Stop your crying. And that's what he wants to reveal and does reveal. My time is done. So let me close. Let me close with a few takeaways from this. And, and, and a reminder or two as well. First, biggest takeaway that this text calls us to is to come to him 
First and foremost, that's what this text calls us to, to come to him, to break through the crowds, to stop hiding, to, to risk possible scorn and ridicule from, from the crowds that they so often can bring and be public of your faith in Jesus. There is healing and strength that comes in sharing your story for you and others. And don't be foolish. I know I sound like Grandpa Funk when I say this. Don't be foolish in thinking that there won't one day be a day of reckoning. Sometimes death comes at 90. Sometimes it comes at 12. But it comes. Secondly, don't, don't ever underestimate the tenderness and compassion of Jesus. When you share your weaknesses, he responds with sympathy and compassion and, and tenderness. He is lowly. He is meek. He is tender. Not only, but nothing else. But nothing less, I should say. That this is what God is like and who Jesus came to make known. And thirdly, please remember as well that Jesus doesn't only want to heal you. He wants to know you as a son or a daughter. He wants relationship, intimate relationship with you. And also remember that sometimes God chooses to delay. Sometimes his delays can feel like they're 12 years long. But he doesn't delay out of hardness. But because there's teaching that only can come in the journey. Teaching for you that, so that others may be taught as well to strengthen them. And last, but certainly not least, remember, death doesn't win. It doesn't win. It doesn't win for those who have placed themselves at the feet of Jesus. Why? Because he took our infirmities. He, he took our uncleanness. He took our abandonment. He, he took our poverty. He took the crowd's mockery. He took the crowd's, crowd's scorn. He took our disease and he bled in our place. Jesus was emptied of his power for us. And who are, well, who are we in return? We're well in all sense of the word. Complete salvation package. Freed, redeemed, forgiven, saved. He called us, he saved us, he adopted us. He calls us sons and daughters. That's what the gospel is and that's what's all over this passage. Everywhere, you can't get it off you. Everywhere and it's great. Jesus took death itself and he killed it so that when we breathe our, breathe our last in an instant, in the twinkling of, of an eye, we will open them again hearing Jesus say, honey, it's time to get up. <laughs> Would you rise as we go into a time of response? But I want you to do a, something for me. One last verse on the screen. I want us to read it together. It's well known. 
but it's a good reminder. Let's read it all together. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Amen? Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to mtownchurch.ca.